Coming up. Three Albanian murderers wanted by Interpol. A caged bear and an underground mafia ring that hoodwinks Scotland Yard. He should suffer his sentence here for the two murders he did. Right next to the door were two huge kitchen knives. A last gesture of defiance or even anger, and it's goodbye to Britain. These are Albanian. From the remote and isolated corners of the UK lockdown, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podumentary. The remarkable stories behind the Mail's biggest investigations, told to us by the journalists who got the scoop. It was, without doubt, the most dramatic doorstep I've ever done. Stephen Wright has spent decades as a crime reporter, covering some of the news cycle's most grisly and harrowing stories. But back in 2016, he was drawn into an explosive investigation that would expose a gaping hole in the UK justice system. I just got back from holiday and I was in the Daily Mail newsroom. When I was called over to see my news editor, Ben Taylor, he said to me an Albanian double murder fugitive who had one leg was fighting extradition. And what was the lead for the story? Why did it catch his eye? It was unusual. It was quirky, but also it was a very serious sort of undercurrent to it. How did this man get into our country? Why was he wanted by Interpol for so long? How had he uh, avoided being arrested? And how was he able to fight his extradition using public money? He was on legal aid to fight extradition back to Albania to serve a 25-year jail sentence for two horrific murders. Let's take a quick step back for some context. A conference of East European communist nation. Albania's Moscow ambassador, Natanajli, is present. Albania has a turbulent history. It's located on the south coast of Europe's Balkan Peninsula, opposite Italy, and it shares a border with Kosovo. The country was heavily affected by the Kosovan conflict back in the late 90s. Slobodan Vasic, a Serb, didn't just lose his house when a bomb went off ten days ago. He also lost his wife. When the ongoing conflict with Serbian forces saw almost one million ethnic Albanians driven out of Kosovo. One of the poorest countries in the world, Albania is now having to cope with an influx of thousands of Kosovo Albanian refugees. It is a modern day great terror. That's how NATO described it. This caused a huge refugee crisis and political instability has continued in Albania well into the 21st century. The country's application to the EU was rejected in 2010. The states now negotiating to join the EU include Albania, Serbia and Turkey. Countries with poor populations and serious problems with organised crime, corruption and sometimes even terrorism. But visa requirements for work and travel to Europe were relaxed. So what did it feel like to be there back in 2016, Stephen? It was my first visit to Albania, never been there before. We got a taxi into Tirana, uh, the city centre. And what struck me really was the fact that a lot of half-built buildings, which had signs in Albanian saying for sale, it, they were everywhere. It did have the feeling of a former communist state, which had suffered from a lack of investment, 
but it's one of the you know, poorest nations in the European area. But I have to say, I mean, I have been reporting on crime for the Daily Mail for 25 years or so, written about Albanian organised crime on a number of occasions, and there's this reputation that the Albanian people have for being very violent. Well, it's obvious, and that's a massive generalisation, because there, clearly there is a very violent criminal fraternity in Albania. But the people were so friendly, and that really struck me right from the start, that the people are very hospitable. So all you had at this stage was a name, and the murderer was called Saliman Bachi, and he was 41, so you had a date of birth. And then where did you start? One of the first things you do when you arrive in a foreign country working on a story where you don't have any contacts is try and get a fixer, someone who can organise things for you, someone who can act as your translator. Luckily, I was able to secure the services of a prominent Albanian TV journalist, and she was very well connected with government, with the police, with other law enforcement agencies, and she was brilliant for me and for Roland in terms of trying to organise things. The Albanian TV journalist put in some calls. She suspected that Barchi came from a town up north called Burel, close to the capital. The plan was to visit the courthouse there where he'd originally been tried for murder in his absence. So they all jumped in a car and set off. It was an uncomfortable journey. We had to go through winding uh, roads through the mountains up to Burel. I remember we had to go through a tunnel through one hill and uh, my fixer said to me, we'd better be back before night sets in because it would be too dangerous to go through this tunnel in the dark. There are bandits here and someone was murdered here uh, a few months ago. So we had to get the job done within daylight and get through that tunnel on the way back to Tirana before it got dark. But they were in luck. Word had already got out when they arrived that Barchi, the killer with Albanian mafia connections, was already facing extradition in the UK. We went to the courthouse and had a meeting with a court official there who gave us details of the case against Barchi. And I was put in touch with the widow of one of the men that Barchi had murdered. And she was very keen to meet me. In fact, I would say within an hour, I was in a coffee shop near the courthouse doing an interview with the widow of one of Barchi's uh, murder victims. How did she react when you went to speak with her about the murder of her husband? Did she give you a lot more information? Her husband had been in a dispute with Barchi over some money. Barchi had, had killed her husband and another man and then fled. She explained that Burrell around that time was a very lawless place. There was uh, easy access to guns and other weapons and criminals were ruling the streets and it wasn't a place which you could describe as safe. So you know, her husband was murdered, Archie was eventually convicted in his absence and jailed for 25 years. But he was nowhere to, to be seen, he'd, he'd fled. There were a lot of tears because she was laying bare what had happened to her husband and uh, her fight for justice for the last 15, 18 years. She didn't think it was ever going to happen that Barchi would be sent back to Albania to serve his 25-year jail sentence. Does he deserve to have human rights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely no. Just as they were preparing to return to Tirana, Stephen's fixer received another phone call. Word was spreading about the investigation. An Albanian judge heard that I was in town and he wanted to share information with me about Albanian fugitives being above the law, escaping extradition from the UK back to Albania, where they wanted for some really awful crimes. They wanted to clean up their past, so to speak. They had a reputation for not enforcing the law with their criminals. And he said, well, this is unfair because we keep asking Scotland Yard and Interpol to send back our criminals from the UK to serve uh, sentences in Albania, but it's, we're not getting a lot of them back. Prison. Now, what do you say to that? I think he is obliged to come and face sentence that uh, the Albanian authorities, Albanian courts, independently from the government... So Scotland Yard had all these requests from the Albanian authorities asking them to send their convicted murderers back. Why hadn't anything been done about it? Was that intentional or did they just not know where these criminals were in the UK? I never really got to the bottom of that. I mean, the Albanians were insistent that they were giving the right details, that they were giving the police in London enough detail to find these individuals, but for whatever reason, nothing was being done. Was it a case that Scotland Yard and other forces were inundated with requests from other law enforcement agencies around the world, or maybe they just didn't have enough resources to do it? All I can say is that an eminent figure in the Albanian judiciary had real concerns about it and wanted my assistance to improve the situation. So who else was on that list of names Interpol's most wanted that you were given? There were several names of people who were thought to be at large in the UK, including a man called Avni Metra, another double murder fugitive, jailed for 25 years in his absence, who had fled to the UK from Albania to escape justice. This man had a dreadful reputation. He had gouged out the eyes of one of his victims and sliced off his ears. So that was one example of a fugitive who the Albanian authorities were insistent was in the London area. And so he would become your second target. Now there was this whole list of dangerous criminals with mafia connections that you were after. Did you feel a bit hesitant at this stage? I would say that I had to proceed with some caution. I mean, Albania is a, a dangerous place if you don't take necessary precautions. You know, my determination was to get to the bottom of this story. I didn't feel vulnerable particularly at that stage, but I was wary about what ex-police officers and barristers who dealt with Albanian criminals in the past had told me, that you have to be careful. But there were plenty of questions that still needed answering. Stephen had managed to arrange a meeting with Barchi's sister at her fashion shop back in the capital. She wasn't close to her brother and handed over photos, court documents and background details of Barchi's family in London. I think we had, by that stage, had the basic story. What I needed to do was to get back to the UK and approach his wife. I wanted to know, in her own words, the story of how they came to the UK 
and his involvement in these crimes. Obviously, I couldn't get to him. I didn't know for sure which prison he was in, fighting extradition. I wanted to give him an opportunity to speak through her to protest his innocence. I have to say that I didn't really hold out much hope that she would talk to me. But as a journalist, all you can do is give it a go. Back in England, Stephen carefully planned his visit to the murderer's family home. Stephen, wasn't that quite a risky thing to do? Would you be allowed to just turn up on her doorstep? There's no rules saying you can't knock on someone's door, and we call it doorstepping in, in journalism, when you sort of call unannounced at someone's house or whatever, stop someone in the street and ask to speak to them. I didn't know what state of her marriage was to Barchi, whether she spoke English, whether she was loyal to him, whether she'd just slammed the door in my face. All I could do was try. So tell me about that day. What happened? I've been sitting down the road outside her house for a good few hours, waiting for the right moment to make an approach to her. I think about mid-afternoon, I was satisfied that her daughter wasn't there, and I went and knocked on the door and introduced myself. I showed my press card and saying that I wanted to talk to her about her husband's extradition battle. I thought at that stage she would tell me politely, or if not worse, to leave, but incredibly... She said, fine, come in. It was evident within a matter of minutes that she absolutely hated him. She'd been in a violent marriage. He was a gangster uh, into cocaine dealing. He had guns and critically, she said that she was with him on the night of the murders and he had confessed to them. She was absolutely adamant that he had confessed to the murders which he was denying at the extradition court. Wow, so he'd confessed all of this to her. And how did they manage to escape from Albania when he was this wanted criminal? They managed to get into the UK in the back of a lorry via Calais. She said that after they got in, to the UK, they went to Croydon, the Home Office Centre there, and claimed to be Kosovan. But at that stage, there were a lot of Kosovan refugees, and they were allowed to gain that residency. People may be wondering, why did she come with him? During the course of this investigation into Albanian murderers, got a real insight into the abusive nature, I'm afraid, of some of the marriages. I've got no doubt at all that that lady, Mrs Barchi, was the victim of a very violent marriage. Effectively, you could say she was coerced. You know, she was saying that, and I had little doubt that she was telling the truth. So she was probably taking quite a big risk in speaking to you. Was she not worried that he would come back and hurt her or her children? I kept asking her repeatedly in the interview whether she was happy to go on the record to be named as, you know, revealing all about her husband's sinister, dark past. And she said, yes, I want the truth to come out. And for him to be brought to justice. And she gave you a lot of photographs and other information, didn't she? Yeah, she gave me details about his criminal activities in London. And she said he was a drug dealer into cocaine, um, that he slept with a pistol by his pillow in case someone came looking for him. And she gave 
me some pictures of him, some really extraordinary pictures. The story of mobster number one, Salomon Barchi, broke in May of 2016. Stephen exposed the backstory of the one-legged Albanian double-murder fugitive posing as a refugee to gain UK citizenship. There were details of the profits he'd made dealing cocaine while living off benefits. So, Stephen, what was the reaction when the story broke? I think it was one of those stories in the Daily Mail which gets a lot of our readers very angry. Other papers followed it up, I remember that very clearly. So there was a lot of outrage, and I would say it was a you know, cracking old-fashioned crime story exposing what really was a horrible man. But this wasn't the end of the story. Stephen still had a list of names to follow up. A ring of criminal fugitives still at large and flying under the radar of Scotland Yard. The second target was going to be Avni Metra, also known as the notorious eye gouger. There was a much wider problem. How many other fugitives were at large? I did a follow-up piece on the Monday after the Saturday when I first exposed Barchi. And on the Monday, I remember too that I was asked to work with my colleague David Jones, a senior feature writer, who had been put on the case too, to look at other fugitives from Albania who were living in the UK. So I spoke to David and he went to Albania himself. He flew out there to look at the case of Avni Metra. And Avni Metra sounds even worse than Barchi. What was his story? Why was he gouging out people's eyes? From what we could gather, he was a psychopathic gangster who had no mercy on his enemies. He had gouged out the eyes of one of his victims and he took the familiar route to the UK, arriving here illegally, claiming to be Kosovan. So they knew that he was in England, but didn't know where he was. It was time for some more detective work. Stephen and his colleague David Jones called in a genealogist to scour the public registers for any kind of birth, death, marriage, or some kind of identity fragment that might lead to Avni Metra. But there was a problem. Nothing seemed to come up. We suspected that Metra may have changed his name. There was someone called Mekra. Mekra with a C. Yeah, so someone's name had changed slightly. But it was the same date of birth that our genealogist researcher had found. And he called to say, look, I've got a feeling that a man called Mekra, who's living in Boreham Wood in Hertfordshire, is really Avni Metra. So where did you go from there? It sounds like it was maybe too early to turn up on his doorstep at that stage. And you didn't have any kind of police backing either, did you? No, we were sort of fishing, really. But it looked enticing that Mekra could actually be Metra. And I put one of the Daily Mail's you know, very talented photographers, uh, Rob Todd, on the address to see if he could get a picture of a man coming out of uh, the address in Borenwood, which we could send to Albania to get identified as Metra before we made an approach to him. How did that go? What did he look like? A scary, sinister-looking man did turn up at the address in a Ford car, got out and went in. We sent that picture, which Rob got of him, back to Albania. And we're talking about, you know, a man who hadn't been seen in Albania for 20-odd years or so. 
word came back that yes there are some similarities it could be him but you know we didn't know for sure and i didn't want to knock on this man's door accusing him of being metra when i wasn't 100 percent sure you know you need to have the confidence that you're dealing with the right person psychologically it's very important to have that confidence before you make an approach so we had to do more work Stephen and david prepared to visit the ex-wife he planned to explain that they were doing some deep background on a man in Boreham Wood and ask if she knew him, but he didn't expect what would come next. We eventually spoke to her in the street. I was keen not to be talking to her in the presence of her children. She was very calm. She said she wasn't surprised that she'd been approached by journalists about her ex-husband, and she'd said that she was very happy to talk to us. She was effectively confirming that Mecra was indeed Metra. She told us over two or three hours on a park bench the most incredible story about her ex-husband, the murderer, how they had fled to the UK, claiming to be Kosovan, how she was in an abusive relationship, it was an utterly gripping account, a very sad account. And then something even more astonishing. During their marriage, he had even been arrested by the police for attacking her. But she was so scared of him that she didn't tell the, the Metropolitan Police who her husband really was. And they accepted that he was Mekra, not someone who, as it turned out, was on the Interpol most wanted list. And how awful for her to be trapped with this monster in a foreign country where she presumably had no one to turn to or nowhere to go. He was a gangster, a very violent man, uh, drank heavily, dealt in drugs, you know, came and went as he, as he saw fit. It was evident he'd had no respect for her in their marriage and frankly, I'm not sure he had respect for many people. Had your thoughts on the situation changed after you spoke with her or did it just confirm what you already suspected? I was then 100% certain that the man in Borenwood was the eye gouger and then we had to plan very carefully how to approach him. It was a very harrowing account and I'll never forget it because it was so gripping and it made me think that on a human level how many other Albanian women or in our country, don't have people to turn to if they are suffering from violence in their marriages. Was it hard to persuade your editor to let you doorstep this guy? I mean, he was called the eye gouger. He clearly had some pretty dangerous connections. What did you want to get from the encounter? We wanted to expose Metra, but we wanted to have be 100% certain and have the evidence to present to the police that this was indeed him. So I didn't actually consult my boss before knocking the door. You know, I was given the freedom to conduct this investigation as I saw fit, taking into account my experience, and we staked out the address for two or three days. There was no sign of his car that had been there the Friday before. And suddenly it swung into the front like parking space. We were parked down the road. 
and suddenly we had a situation where, right, we're going to go and approach him. The decision was taken that they would film the encounter using Stephen's mobile phone tucked into his blazer pocket. Stephen and David then walked up to the address. The photographer was waiting in the car as backup in case the situation escalated. Obviously, I was aware this man is very dangerous. You know, his nickname was the eye gouger. I think it's fair to say David and I were very nervous, but we wanted to get the story. We wanted to be absolutely certain that it was indeed Metra, so that I could call the police and arrange for him to be apprehended. Can I have a quick chat with you, Mr Metra, please? Could you come out a second? I'm sorry to trouble you. Knocking on the door, I didn't know what to expect. And when Metra opened the door, absolutely staggered by what we saw. Right next to the door were two huge kitchen knives. And what did you ask him? That doesn't sound like a very safe interview situation. It wasn't safe. I mean, looking back, we were lucky. You know, I had a plan about um, how to deal with this, and that was not to appear threatening to him and to encourage him to talk to us. I just wanted to have a quick chat with you. My name's Mr Wright, and this is Mr... What kind of questions did you ask him? Well, I said that we had been investigating the murders of two men in Albania back in 1990s. We mentioned the names of individuals and said that the man convicted of those murders... It's called Avni Metra, and I believe that you are Avni Metra. He looked at me and David and then walked back into his really squalid flat. The door was left ajar, and David and I looked at each other thinking, what should we do? There's two kitchen knives there. Is this a trap? Then we walked in. I can't remember, but I don't know. You can't, but, remember. You can't remember, but it was a you case. Really you can't remember, sorry. Because it was a case, obviously, which affects you, because you were convicted, weren't you? Um, On video oh, for about 40 yeah. minutes. The case of we cross examined him. He was saying yeah. he was Kosovan. He showed us documentation, so housing benefits and other public Burrell. utility bills Burrell. and stuff, which was in the name of Mekra. No. Yes, you are. Mm. No, I. I obviously was 110% certain this was Metra. But I wanted to give him the feeling that he had robbed us off. It was, without doubt, the most dramatic doorstep I've ever done. Were we lucky to get in and out alive? Maybe that's an exaggeration. What the important thing is that we weren't unlucky. It could have gone horribly wrong. If I'd known before I knocked on the door that there'd be two huge kitchen knives there, would we have done it? Quite probably not, but we got away with it. Now they had the information they needed, it was time to get the police involved. I'm used to dealing with the police, in particular the Metropolitan Police, so I made contact with one of their senior press officers to say that I had a compelling dossier, that a very dangerous fugitive, a man who'd been on Interpol's most wanted list, was living in Boreham Wood and he needs to be arrested. Within a matter of hours, the Met were very confident that the Daily Mail had found a very dangerous fugitive. It was very quickly escalated. We agreed not to report anything about the hunt for Metra pending him being arrested, which mercifully he was. Metra's arrest was a front-page splash on the 9th of June 2016, the Albanian killer on Interpol's most wanted list, who had been living freely in the UK for the past 18 years, 
The lead photo was taken from the explosive mobile phone video showing Metro leaning on his kitchen counter with his hand just one inch away from the two sharp kitchen knives lying in front of him. But your investigation didn't end there, did it, Stephen? No. Two murderers exposed, you could say, by the Daily Mail in a matter of weeks. And then my mind returned to the list that I was given in Albania and also a list that I compiled myself about people who had been extradited from the UK back to Albania. And I looked very closely at the case of a man called Ardian Rigami. He murdered a, a man, shooting him with a machine gun through the back. And then he fled to the UK, again claiming to be a Kosovan refugee. He had been found in Essex several years earlier and extradited back to Albania. But there was another twist in Rigami's story that raised some serious red flags. I established that he had been extradited back to Albania to serve a prison sentence of 15 years several years earlier. But he had been let out after serving barely a quarter of that sentence and that he'd come back to the UK on a tourist visa. What? He was back in the UK after all of that? Yeah, he had been extradited to serve a sentence of 15 years, only served four years, and then came straight back to the UK and had been in the UK flaunting his presence here on Facebook and nothing had been done. It just deepened the scandal around the, you know, the way that Albanian murder fugitives or killers were coming to our country and not fearing any consequences. So you called the Home Office to report your findings on this latest murder fugitive. Were they trying to offer you a job at this stage? Well, I certainly jokingly said to one of the police uh, people I was dealing with, I'll, I'll send you an invoice for my work rounding up fugitives going through Interpol's most wanted list for them. Could this whole situation have been avoided if he'd been properly flagged by authorities when he was returning? The Home Office was aware that he was here, but they just couldn't get him out of the country. He was, I think, using the Human Rights Act to say that he had a right to family life, he had two British-born daughters. It's just the process. It's long and it's expensive. In his case, it exposed that. What I would say is, when I rang the Home Office to say... Why is Rigami here? Why is he out and about? It turned out he was on a tag, he was on a curfew, he was breaching the terms of that curfew, and as a result of my inquiries, he was back in custody within, within a few hours, only to be released yet again, uh, after which he subjected his wife to a truly horrendous physical assault, which ultimately resulted in him being deported. From the Home Office's point of view, they must be grateful that it was only a physical assault and not something more serious than that because, let's not forget, this is a man who murdered someone with a machine gun. And there was another part to this story, wasn't there? Three Albanian murderers went back into jail or got deported thanks to this investigation. But there was also an Albanian brown bear called Tommy who was released, wasn't there? This was truly extraordinary. And people who know me, I've been covering crime for the mail for 25 years or so. But I've never been involved in campaigns to save animals. While Roland Hoskins and I were travelling to Burrell, as we were going through the countryside between Tirana and Burrell, Roland suddenly said, I've just seen a bear in a cage. 
at a restaurant. So we did a U-turn, went back to this sort of very modest restaurant in a mountain village, and there was a huge mountain bear there in a cage which was full of litter. Tommy was very agitated, he was pacing around. What added to his ordeal was that from his cage he could see across the mountains to where he used to roam freely. It was torture. And I thought, this is, this is awful. And it turned out there are a hundred mountain bears across Albania who are tourist attractions at restaurants. What did the owner of the restaurant say when you approached him about it? Well, we were posing as tourists. We had lunch there and we asked some questions about the bear. And he said that he caught him two years ago and that um, the restaurant goes liked feeding Tommy. So Tommy was being fed crisps and burgers or whatever. The owner did say to us through our interpreter, he's, he's a very well-behaved mountain bear. If you wish, I can get him out on a chain and you know, he can walk around the car park and you can feed him. That was a, an offer which was politely declined. I didn't want to end up being lunch for a mountain bear. We got the video and Roland got some superb pictures of this bear and we subsequently did a big piece for Mail Online. Looking at those pictures and video footage that you took is so upsetting and it, it really hit a nerve with people all over the world, didn't it, when that article was released? What was the reaction? Well, people were horrified. It's really strange sometimes that you, you find that stories about animal cruelty can often evoke a, a stronger reaction than the cruelty people inflict on each other. So, yeah, there was a massive reaction. The Albanian version of the RSPCA took up the cause and, cut a long story short, some months later, the restaurant was raided and Tommy was rescued. Even the Albanian Environment Minister praised the Daily Mail for its campaign to release Tommy the Bear. Unfortunately, because I had other commitments, I wasn't there to see this great moment when Tommy the Bear got justice. He was taken to an animal sanctuary in Kosovo, where he lives freely, and um, there were some lovely pictures which emerged later about how a properly nourished Tommy the Bear had recovered from his awful ordeal and was happily living out his days. So Tommy the Bear did get justice. Tommy the Bear got justice in addition to the three Albanian murderers. And so Stephen, you deal with some really dangerous people and situations on the criminal investigations beat. Do you ever worry about safety when you're doing this kind of investigation? I don't think I really felt threatened on any particular occasion. Oh, well, apart from confronting a double murder fugitive called the eye gouger who had two kitchen knives next to him. But no, I didn't really feel that threatened, but I was wary. I had to take precautions, but I have a job to do as well. And I think that I'm proud for the Daily Mail that we were able to expose those killers and um, get them back to Albania, where they should be. And what draws you to this kind of story? What makes it worth it? I like doing stories which involve gaining justice. I've in the past dealt with some high-profile cases, Stephen Lawrence case, police corruption, miscarriages of justice effectively. So I get drawn to those stories and I really want to commend the bravery of the women who I dealt with in these stories. Barchi's wife, violent marriage, wanted to speak out when she could. 
the eye gouger's ex-wife, who waved her anonymity, I might add, to reveal that she'd been raped by him, but wanted to speak out as well. There are inspiring stories from this particular case. A lot of brave women at the centre of this. And what advice would you give to other journalists who want to get involved in the crime beat? It's really about having an open mind, that's what I'd say. You have to be, have those qualities of being dogged, but I think you have to be open-minded. I was asked to go to Albania to look at one particular person. As it turned out, I got sent of a much bigger situation and was able to, with the backing of the Daily Mail, investigate three murderers, not one, and obviously get justice for Tommy the Bear. So my advice would be rather like being a detective, really. You go where the story takes you, and the story in this particular case took me somewhere I could never have imagined. That's it from us this week on Scoop. From our sofas at home to yours, we're all in lockdown, but we'll be back again soon for another insider look at the art of journalism investigations. I'm Amelia Hemphill. You can read more of Stephen Wright's investigations in the Daily Mail on Mail Plus's True Crime podcast, which Stephen hosts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. Spotify.